And so today I want to talk to us about the idea of temptation. And, you know, we're in the middle of a series called Losing My Religion, and sometimes that's not a bad thing. Sometimes there are certain beliefs that we hold on to that really get in the way. And this comes right out of the book of James, which is Jesus's uh, little brother. And uh, if you can imagine growing up with the Son of God being your oldest brother, uh, it's pretty intimidating. And Jesus really came in and rattled what was the religious norm at the time to give clarity of what life in uh, Christ looked like, what it really meant to have an authentic faith in uh, God. And so James is growing up with this pressure. And it wasn't until sometime after Jesus uh, rose from the dead, went back into heaven uh, to be with the Heavenly Father, that he came to faith. And so as we're reading the book of James, we're really seeing his struggle and his journey uh, and, and his understanding of how religion got in the way of what it really meant to follow God. Today, when we think about temptation, I want to pose to you the idea that sometimes religion does more to empower temptation than it does to help us. You know, and, and I don't know how you feel about temptation, but temptation is simply the, the drawing away or calling us away from a close relationship with God. That's what it is. It's a temptation to, to walk away from what God has for us, to embrace whatever the offer is. Temptation is, is also one of those things that causes a lot of people to doubt their faith, right? You know, there's a lot of us that have struggled with temptation, find ourselves in repeated sin, and then we wonder, well, maybe the gospel doesn't work. Maybe I'm not really saved. Maybe this isn't really real at all. When the outside world looks at one of us that falls, especially a pastor, you know, again, it becomes that big question mark. Is there any validity to faith? So today, as we uh, jump into God's word, I want us to think about lies we believe about temptation. There are four of them. We're going to talk about the first one, which uh, first lie is that God uses temptation to test our faith. I don't know if you're one of those folks, but some people, you know, think that the way God tests our faith is through bringing a temptation. It's like, hey, if you're really the real deal, you know, I'm going to throw this in front of you. If you bite, you're not really following me. Or if you, if you resist, then, hey, you're, you're on track. But, but that's not really a healthy way to look at temptation, right? The Bible tells us that let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And so the idea that God would use temptation goes against God's very word right here. And there's a couple reasons for that. See, if God tempts, then he has to think of ways to trap, trick, and ruin you. That's a pretty, pretty dark place to be if you're God. If you're up there looking at a child saying, hey, you're walking along, you're doing fine. Man, what's your real hang-up? How can I entice you? How can I really test to see if you're the real deal? That's a pretty dark thing to do. And that makes God dark. And the Bible teaches us that in him is light and there is no darkness at all. And plus the Bible teaches us that God cannot be tempted. So God's not tempted to inflict evil upon anyone. You know, if God tempts, then he is also to be blamed for our struggle and our sins, right? And we get really close to that when we wrestle with bad things that happen to us. You know, God, if you really cared, you would protect. God, if you really wanted me to overcome, you'd intervene. And then you don't. And then after all, if God wanted me to succeed, he wouldn't have tempted me in the first place. So then it becomes God's fault. And then we, we kind of lose responsibility. But the Bible again says that God tempts no one. So God's not a cruel God. He's not up there playing a game with us. Religiously, you know, when we're tempted, this isn't God 
you know, speaking to us, trying to test our faith. And that's very important for us to understand. And whatever religious thought we have or belief that would, that would lean us in that direction, we need to run away from. Truth is, is that there are three sources of temptation, all right? The Bible teaches that there's the world, the flesh, and Satan. So let's talk about the world because this is a fun one for a lot of Christians because we want to avoid everything in the world, right? You ever know some of those people? It's like everything is evil, everything is bad, you know, don't watch TV, don't read the newspaper, don't go on the internet, you know, hide yourself, you know, in your closet, move to a rural part of the, the country and just seclude yourself, right? There's some people that are so afraid of the world, they don't know how to look at the world and say, well, this is something that can be redeemed or this is something that should be rejected. Um, you know, we just have no discernment. But essentially the world is, is any kind of organized system or belief, right? So a worldview, as the Bible's talking about, it's not talking about everything in the world, it's talking about organized systems or worldviews that are in direct opposition to God and rebellion against him. Right? There are some very clear things in the world that are set out to incite rebellion against God. Those are the kind of things that tempt us, right? Especially when we're going through difficult times. It's like, God, I was trusting you and all this hardships come my way and I didn't ask for it. And we get really weak and we get really frustrated. And then all those other ideas start to become really enticing. So it's a source of temptation. Flesh, this is the pleasures of your life. You know, everything physical, if you will. And so flesh is the internal resistance that leads us to rebel against God and to to desire what he forbids, right? Now, there are a lot of things, you know, in life that God gave us that we abuse. So things like sex, things like alcohol, those are things that can seriously be abused. But they're not pleasures that God calls us to never enjoy whatsoever in life. He gives them a context and a grounds by which to interact with them. But again, the temptation is is to abuse and consume when God's is to restrain and and enjoy. And then, of course, Satan. And this is the weird one to talk about, right? (laughs) Because, you know, we, we might like the idea of spiritualism, but when we start talking about, you know, evil and suffering, personifying that, pinning that to a person, a ruler, if you will, that has you know, influence and, and, and spirits at his disposal becomes a very tricky thing. But there is a God who is for us. It's not that far to believe that there is an enemy against us. And so uh, Satan is known as the tempter. He's known as a schemer. He's known as the father of these lies that tempt us in our flesh. You know, the second um, lie that we believe about temptation is that it's not that big of a deal. This is where grace kind of gets in the middle of things and we abuse it a little bit. We look at it and we say, you know what, God loves us, he cares for us, I'm, I'm, I'm secure in my salvation, you know, there's nothing that I can do that will separate me from the love of God. And, and we rest in that and there's great peace, but it's a great opportunity for us to abuse it as well. And we look at things and temptation, and it's like, you know, it's not that big of a deal. If I do this, God still loves me. It's not the end of the world. It's not that big of a deal. But let's dig in a little bit. The rest of James um, chapter 1 goes on to say, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. Now think about this for a second. These are pretty big terms. Lured and enticed, those are hunting terms. I don't know about you. If you're the hunter, things are pretty cool. If you're the prey, not so cool. It's pretty serious for you, right? There's a lot on the line. Um, conceived and give birth, I don't know about you, but childbirth is, is a game changer. All right? It's a big deal, okay? So, so the very language is like, okay, God doesn't tempt, and he's not tempted by anybody. A person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, when he is hunted, if you will. And when things go wrong, it gives birth to sin, and sin gives birth to death. All very serious language. See, the idea of being lured and enticed is the idea of being drawn out of a safe place and brought into a trap. And then, of course, the seriousness of childbirth being equated to something called sin, which is our rebellion against God and our selfishness towards others. And it brings about death. It, it, it has a uh, serious impact on our lives. We need to understand that those simple temptations, if you will, shouldn't be marginalized and easily discredited. Temptation comes to us, to our desires in three ways. The first one is the lust of the eyes. The Bible teaches us this in 1 John, I believe it's chapter 2, verse 6. And, and it says that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the evil pride of life, these things are, draw us away from God. And so for the lust of the eyes, the target is your mind. You're, you're always seeing, you're always processing, you're always perceiving Right? You're looking around, you're making observations and judgments about yourself, about people around you, what's good, what's bad, and there's a battle for your mind, what you think. And so the target for your eyes is your mind and how you see yourself, others, and the world around you. you know, and if, if God's not a part of that, then you become the ultimate voice, or culture becomes the ultimate voice for you. Not everything that culture does is bad. We can look around and see good in people that are not Christ followers. The Bible teaches us that that's true because God has created all of us in his image. But the Bible is also true saying that all of us have fallen short of that glory, his glory, his character. We all come short of what we really should be. So we can see good, but we see this, this darkness that's within humanity as well. And we shouldn't be afraid to acknowledge those two things. But if we rule God out, then we're the judges of those things. And we are not always fair judges. You know, another thing that we're tempted with is lust of the flesh. This is the target of your body. It looks good, feels good, must have it, must be good. And it's where we don't restrain, we don't discipline. It's everything from food to sex, right? Food is good, but it can seriously be abused. You know, craving a Big Mac once in a while, probably not a bad thing. Craving a Big Mac every day, you know, watch the documentary Supersize Me, right? It's, it has a very bad effect on our life. And so, and so it's this idea of cravings and not resisting those cravings and not putting those cravings within context of what is good, right? And so there's this temptation to abuse. And then, of course, pride of life. And this is, this is the target of your motivations. Why shouldn't I have what I want when I want? You know, this is where we think the story's going to be different for me. Yeah, all these other people did this and it fell apart, but, but I got this. I'm not going to get hooked. I'm not going to get drugged too far. 
You know, and we, we have this attitude that, that we are going to be able to outlive and outdo uh, people that have gone before us that have given us warnings. Man, and this is so true, you know, going all the way back to high school, right? Your parents would warn you about things, and you're like, that was like a long time ago, Mom, Dad. What was that, like 80 years ago that you graduated? Things are so different now, right? It's, it's just ingrained in us. We do this with every area of authority, you know, we, we overlook the wisdom of older generations because it's like, that was old. That's archaic. You know, this is life. Things are different. This is a modern era. And we throw out wisdom without really vetting it. So, see, we, we can be tempted through the avenues of our mind, of our body, and of our motivations. There's always a predator at the other end of the lure. That's what I want you to understand. Temptation is a big deal, right? You're lured away and enticed. There's always a predator on the other side of the bait. The Bible teaches that. You have an enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. In other words, he wants to take very good things and make them very bad experiences in your life. The bottom line is, If temptation doesn't come from God and he tempts no one, and we're the ones being tempted, temptation is demonic. And I know that seems like an overreach, but I want you to think about it. If God's not up there testing your faith through temptation, and he's trying to bless you and draw you into this incredible life relationship with him, and your enemy is trying to draw you away, that enemy means for your harm. It's tied to Satan himself, and it makes it demonic. Third lie we believe about temptation is that God's will is not that great. (laughs) It's where we're looking at temptation. We're saying, all right, God says this, and this is the way that he did it, and maybe this is just the way Christianity has made things up all these years, and we lived under this really old rule that we shouldn't live under anymore. And then, you know, maybe that's true, because sometimes the church does impose rules that shouldn't be there. We're very guilty of that. And then we look over and we say, man, this, this way over here, my friends and everybody that's, you know, in the culture around me says that this is what's right and it seems right and it feels right and it's actually probably more peaceful. You know, I can just, you know, I can easily find myself in this experience and we begin to say, well, you know, what God said really isn't that great. You know, God's not really there to give me the best. He's there to give me what's hardest and what's most difficult and what drains me. And man, is that a dangerous place to be. The truth is, both paths are uncertain. One promises something quickly and easily. The other one challenges that very emotion. And it becomes, what do we do? Where do we go? See, we see this in the next few verses in the book of James, where it says, Do not be deceived. Right? So he comes off of, you know, you can blame God and you can doubt God. He says, don't let that happen, my dear brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 
Notice the emphatic language here. He says, my dear brothers. He's saying, you know, he, he's talking with compassion and care and concern. He's like, he, he has their best interests in mind. And he says, every good gift and every perfect gift. And so he's not making a distinguishing thing between good and perfect. He's like, man, every good gift, every perfect gift. I mean, this good and perfect thing that God come, that, that, that we could have in life ultimately comes down from the Father of light. Where there's no darkness, no shadow, no evil intent, no withholding, no drawing back from you. God wants to give you his very best. Without restraint, without, you know, a, a game, he simply wants to bless you. Everything good, everything perfect that you could imagine in life comes from me. That's his message. But the lie that we have in religion is that, well... You know, it's harder and it's, it's a little older. And, you know, if I were calling the shots, you know, and I was creating a new version of God, thought a little more progressively about my theology, rejected some of that fundamental stuff because there are some things worth rejecting, we do what we want to do. All under the under, understanding that God doesn't give us what's best. And so these are all very real emotions, but I have to ask you, have you ever been wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't, but, you know, maybe you have. Um, no, but, I mean, that's the thing. It's like everything we're doing, it's like, I, I think I got a better plan. I think I got this. I think I can make the best decision here. And even though we know that there's great danger in that, that we can make really foolish choices, we get these desires and our minds start thinking, well, you know, I can do this. And our body starts saying, man, this would be a really good thing for me. And then our pride says, dude, I got this, right? I'm going to make sure it's not going to be a train wreck. And if I end off off just a little bit, I'll self-correct. And we underestimate the power of passion and desire and being drawn away. And God's like, listen, I want to help redeem that passion. I want to help direct that passion in a positive direction. And that means that you got to trust somebody else's compass other than your own. See, we don't obey God because of fear but out of an expectation of great things. For so many people, obedience to God is, man, if I do this, my life's going to, you know, if I don't follow God, my life is going to stink. Right? He's just going to bring a smackdown. He's just going to ruin me. He's just going to bring hardship. Man, my life's going to fall apart. My, my marriage is going to be, you know, at its end and never be repaired. You know, I'll lose my job. You know, all these, and we do these crazy things out of fear. And I'm telling you, fear is no motivation for faith or love or anything good. God never asks for your terror of him. He asks for your respect. But it's more out of, I'm doing this because of the expectation of great things. When I made marriage vows to my wife, it wasn't out of fear that she would kill me, despite what Lifetime Network shows you in all of the crime dramas. And guys, don't watch crime dramas. Uh, it's scary, right? And, it, you know, I don't make promises to my wife out of fear. I made them out of the expectation of good things. That we would have a happy house and home in life, in marriage, and being 60 years old, sitting across the table from each other, still being in love with each other, and having a foundation of joy. And if our marriage is supposed to be a picture of the gospel and, and God's relationship with us, then that's God's motivation for us too. 
God doesn't say, if you love me, you will do whatever I tell you to do. That's manipulation. God's like, man, if you're in love with me, if you love me, the obedience just comes along. You naturally walk in good things. You naturally enjoy expectation of great things. And that tension of, well, maybe if I got it now, it'd be better, seems really dumb. See, this is God's heart. The next lie we believe is that we can fight it on our own. Oh, man, this is probably the biggest lie of religion, is that it's all up to you. It's all up to you. And then on the opposite extreme is that, well, it's all up to God. Both of those are very bad religious ideas. God does redeem. God is our strength. But we look to Him for that strength. We come to Him as we are. But for most of us, that's not how we come to Him. See, the Bible teaches us, next verse in this chapter of James, it says, Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. Of His own will, not the will of someone else, not your will, not your desire, of His own desire of his own heart, of his own passion, he has brought all of us out, brought all of us forth by this word of truth. The word of truth is the gospel, that God created us to be in his image. Man has rebelled against that image and acted in rebellion and selfishness and it's martyred that image. Jesus came to show that God loves us and doesn't condemn us, that he wants to redeem us, and he offers to change us and transform us from the inside out by faith, and then we can have a life where we walk with him and enjoy him and invite other people to walk with him and enjoy him. It's this life of renewal. That's the word of truth. By this incredible message of God loving us and wanting to redeem us and not condemning us and punishing us, out of this, God has brought us forth. That we should be kind of first fruits, that we should be examples, the first people that, that, you know, experience this and testify to this of all of his creatures. See, God wants to use you to show people that it's only through him, through his message, through his redemption, we avoid temptation. Think about it. If temptation appeals to our thoughts, desires, and motives, why would it be a good idea to fight it in our own strength? Something would tell you that, okay, if, if, if my mind, if I can be deceived, if my mind and my body and my motives can work against me, my heart can work against me, maybe I need another voice speaking into my life, right? <laughs> make sense. And see, this is what Jesus is supposed to be. This is what the Holy Spirit is supposed to do in our life. This is what the Christian community is supposed to be about. Not judging you and saying you're being an idiot, but saying God says this and he believes this about you and he wants to do this in your life. And I want to walk with you and encourage you. But bad religion leads us to say, I need to get this right and bring myself to God. It's the idea of cleaning yourself up before you take a shower. Nobody does that, except in church. I've got to church myself up a little bit. I've got to beat myself down a little bit, so I'm sure I feel really sorry. That's, God, that's worldly sorrow, by the way. That's not godly sorrow. 
And if I can just present myself to God and cry enough and feel bad enough, then maybe I won't do it anymore. Because after all, that's what punishment has been, you know, inbred in us. It's what punishment teaches us in our culture. If we just make the consequence miserable enough, people will avoid it. Yeah, that doesn't really work, does it? It's a great culture for abuse, but not one for restoration and redemption. See, God's heart simply says, come to me as you are. Godly sorrow is realizing it's like, man, God, I'm away from you, and I don't want to be away from you. I, I choose you. I want to be with you, be satisfied with you, and to believe that you have great things in store for me, and it's there that I find my strength. James tells us later on how we can overcome temptation. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. See, so many of us try to resist the devil and then come and submit ourselves to God. God is simply saying, come. So see, your first step when you're struggling with temptation isn't what you stop doing, it's what you start doing. See, if the bait on that hook is to draw you out of a safe relationship with God into a very dark place, a manipulative place, a place of abuse and pain. The thing that you want to do is turn to your safe place. See, it's an invitation to worship, if you will. Are you going to be devoted to yourself or are you going to devote yourself to him? George Bernard Shaw said it this way, I never resist temptation because he started off with submitting to God because I have found that things that are bad for me do not tempt me. He knew that everything good was found in a relationship with his father. Everything good was found in a relationship with Jesus. And anything that came along to rob him of that wasn't any good for him wasn't about resisting temptation. It was about drawing into his walk with his father. Just a reminder, do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Are we really convinced that there's no variation or shadow in God, that he is all good has our best interest of good in mind and that we can devote ourselves to him and believe that everything he has, no matter what discipline it may ask of us, will ultimately lead to good and perfect things. It's like this. The word variation of shadow is the word parallage. And, and I want to illustrate it for you instead of telling you what it is. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to close one eye, doesn't matter which one it is. And I want you to focus on the cross with your one open eye. And then I want you to take your thumb and I want you to put it in between your eye and the cross. So block the view of the cross with your thumb. Right? So it's hidden. 
See, temptation is that thumb. Whatever it is that's thrown in front of you that causes you to think, causes you to uh, seek a pleasure uh, outside of God's will, that challenges your motivations, that temptation blocks. God is still there. He's still promising good and perfect things, but there's this temptation to shortcut, if you will. And what the Bible is saying here is that paralyzed means that God is constant and steady. He's not hidden. He's not far away, even though it feels like he is in that moment. And what we really need to do to see that there's no shifting shadow, it's a sailor's term, is that when, when the sight is blocked, you, you use another perspective. So keep your thumb there and switch your open eye. Now you see them both, right? This is the perspective we need to ask God for. God, I want to see you in the midst of temptation. I want to see that you are better and I want to see past whatever it is that's in front of me to trust you. See, it's not about resisting the temptation. I want to look past it and see you. See, what happened was is that when we believe that God is good, things shift, don't they? The temptation shifts. God doesn't. He's constant. What needs to change is our perspective of him, ourselves, and the things around us. Will we trust him? 